Welcome to Bullshift the Podcast, where for the next half hour or so, we'll be discussing how the financial services industry shifts your attention to be more bullish. My name is John DeGuy. I'm the author of the book Bullshift and the host. Pleased to have you here. My guest this week is David Lewis, and David is a guy who sort of needs no introduction in Canadian financial behavioral economics circles, but perhaps for the people watching and listening, um, an introduction might be in order. He's the president of BE Works Research Institute. He's got a PhD in marketing, which uh, involves specializing in consumer behavior. He's got an MBA in strategy and finance, and he's also a CFA. So the, the man comes very, very highly credentialed. David has had a number of senior management positions throughout uh, North America in his long and illustrious career, including at ING Direct, Barclays USA, UBS Financial Services. He's served on a number of different boards, and he's done a lot of wonderful things. He's been named one of the top 50 marketers in the U.S. by Ad Age Magazine, and he enjoys applying scientific insights to the way people look at real-world problems. David, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, John. It's good to talk to you again. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be able to sort of reconnect with uh, friends and acquaintances to talk about how bullshift, this idea of shifting people's attention to be more optimistic and to be positive in the world, can be applied to the way we all look at things and the way we think about things. And I'm wondering if you could maybe begin with a really, really broad overview to help people think about the way the problem might be framed. And specifically what I'm asking is, could you maybe draw a distinction between behavioral economics and traditional economics so that the people listening can maybe get a sense of why, why it's different and why it matters? Yeah, sure. It's certainly an interesting question. Fundamentally, economics is about the allocation of resources. And for individuals, it's how they make decisions under scarcity. Uh, we have limited time, we have limited money, and we have to make decisions. Traditional economics, uh, you know, viewed as classical economics or neoclassical or new classical, they all share some basic assumptions about how humans think and make decisions. Uh, and if you think about those decisions, um, you know, every day we make a decision. Am I going to save for retirement or am I going to go out to dinner or go on a cruise now? Um, do I value the pleasure of, of today greater than the security of retirement tomorrow? That's an economic decision. Mm -hmm. And traditional economics views us as being, as making normatively optimal decisions. And by that, it means that it's a decision that is in our best interest uh, and there is a, a right decision. Um, most people would agree that retiring penniless is not actually a good decision, yet many people fail to save enough for retirement. Uh, the other assumption is that we dispassionately pursue self-interest, that we're not affected by emotions, that uh, we, we have our self-interest always first and foremost when making a decision. But, you know, again, uh, that retirement savings decision, it's, it's an easy, simple decision. It's easy to think about, so that's why I use it as an example. Uh, we don't always think about what's in our best interest when we make decisions. Um, sometimes passions do come into play. There is emotions. There's a desire for pleasure versus uh, foregone pleasure of saving. It also says we make unbiased judgments that, um, you know, we, we make decisions kind of like a calculator. 
um, you know, like Spock on Star Trek, that uh, emotions and biases don't enter into it. Uh, we're simply computers and, and make good decisions. But, you know, we know when, when we're allocating money to our saving for retirement, you know, many times people will be concerned with risk and they'll say, well, you know, I don't want to take risks, so I'm just going to put my money in a savings account. Um, you know, that's a biased judgment. We all know that you're never going to be able to actually retire and maintain your standard of living unless you win a lottery, which isn't likely, uh, <laughs> unless you actually, you know, remove emotions from the decision and say, look, I, I got to be less concerned about short term losses and think about long term gains. A lot of people talk about about, about that sort of decision making. And, and, you know, it's it's funny because a lot of people make decisions. We think we're rational. Uh, self-interested optimizers, as you say, but there's a lot of research that shows that the decisions are actually made emotionally and then they're rationalized. So the old saying that I like to use is that people who rationalize tell rational lies. It's plausible, uh, but, but we oftentimes make the decision emotionally and then find a way to justify the decision through some narrative that might cobble together random facts that support what we always wanted all along, and it's a form of confirmation bias and doing what we always wanted to do, and then just making it sound like this was all part of my plan all along. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, that's an example of how we're not computers. Right. Uh, and yet, traditional neoclassical economics, new classical economics, they make all of these assumptions in order for their, their macroeconomic models to actually hang together. Um, and the final one they make is that we effortlessly implement those rational decisions. You know, like we join a gym. So because we've joined a gym, we wouldn't want to be wasting money. So, of course, we effortlessly go to the gym every single day. And so that's simply not true. And where behavioral economics takes a departure from that neoclassical or new classical is it says, no, you know, we have cognitive limitations. So we're not perfect computers able to make calculations. We can't calculate the payoff from multiple different investment uh, portfolios in our head. Uh, we have limitations. We have ill-defined preferences and desires, right? I'm we not satisfy. sure how much. Sorry? We satisfy. We, yes, we, we, we choose the first thing that actually looks good enough instead of looking at it as closely as we otherwise would. Yeah, we'd be paralyzed by decisions if we had to think through every possible day. You know, I had to pick a coffee this morning. You know, if I hadn't just taken a shortcut, I'd still be there trying to decide whether I want a small, medium, large, you know, light roast, dark roast, whatever. Right? I'm, there's a limit to how much we can think about things. And we have ill-defined desires and preferences. I'm not sure how much I value present pleasure over future pleasure, um, spending today versus saving tomorrow. It's hard for me to really get my mind around that. Uh, our judgments are influenced by emotions, right? When markets are crashing, everyone's, you know, running off a cliff thinking the world's ending. And when they're going up, they think it'll never stop until it does. And, you know, we're subject to these self-control and regulation problems. We may set a personal budget, but actually the extensive research has shown that we underestimate our future expenses and overestimate our ability to limit our spending. So that's really the difference between, you know, new classical economics and behavioral economics. New classical says we have these assumptions and uh, and they're all true, and because that's true, our model's true. And behavioral economics says, well, a lot of those assumptions really don't reflect how things work in the real world. So let's start thinking about how people really make those decisions. Right. So that that sort of uh, brings brings to mind the idea that uh, uh, in the real world things are just different from what you actually expect. And uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of a certain phrase that'll come to me. But before we get to that, let me see if I can uh, ask you a little bit more about how behavioral economics interplays with 
uh, individual investors, but also with financial advisors, because there, there, are, there are hopefully some elements of utility, but maybe some blind spots and some risks as well. And I'm wondering if you could maybe think of a few of those that you can sort of share. Yeah, I mean, uh, earlier in my career, I was, I was selling, well, I should say marketing, uh, money market funds in the US. And the assumption always was you simply present the one year, three year, five year returns, standard deviations compared to basic indexes. And you know, the, the investing public will read it and go, well, that's wonderful. Obviously I should select this asset allocation uh, between these funds and there we go, I'm done. Uh, and the world didn't work that way. And you know, I found out afterwards, right? I studied behavioral economics um, after I had left Wall Street because I was curious as to why people consistently made suboptimal decisions. And so where this helps the financial services industry is if we stop assuming people are computers and start assuming that they're humans, then it changes our value proposition and the way we need to interact. Because I think everyone has the same objective, better financial outcomes for investors. Mm -hmm. um, and the question is, you know, are they computers? And you simply show them one, three, five-year standard deviation, alpha, mm -hmm. you know, all of these wonderful stats that the average person really doesn't understand and it doesn't help them have better financial outcomes. It, it caused me to think, so I remembered what I was going to say a moment ago and there's an old sort of a cute little cheeky phrase that uh, the difference between theory and practice is, is this. In theory, there's no difference, but in practice, there is. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's sort of a, a neat way to encapsulate traditional uh, economics from behavioral economics because traditional economics is is theory and the theory is all wonderful in theory but in practice that's not the way we make decisions that's not the way things work and i think increasingly as we get into the 2020s we we have to be more purposeful and the theory is all fine and well and you know people have even said that even though the theory isn't particularly accurate we should maybe make decisions as if it was accurate because it's as good an approximation of what we should, what we might reasonably expect at any rate the point though is that in practice that's not how we decide things. We, we, we're, we're not utility optimizers. We're people who make snap decisions and judgments that are oftentimes emotional that we can't even explain our emotions sometimes. We just do it because that's what our gut says. We don't even know why we think it. We just think it and, and then that's what we do. And of course, we find a way to make it sound like it was all thought through uh, at the end of the day, but that's not necessarily the way things work. So I'm wondering the whole bun fight on that one, uh, the philosophical bun fight, um, the philosophy that people say it doesn't matter if the assumptions are wrong as long as the predictions are right is called instrumentalism. And a lot of people who defend new classical economics say, yes, we know that people don't just passionately pursue self-interest, and yes, they're not they don't make normatively optimal decisions. But the, that's okay if some of those uh, assumptions are violated because it does explain how people behave. And that's where behavioral economists step in and say, no, it absolutely doesn't. They behave the opposite of the way you predict. So it's time to change your theory. There's a, a wonderful book, which I think you know, called Misbehaving, written by Richard Thaler. It came out seven or eight years ago. And Thaler won the Nobel Prize a couple of years after the book came out. And he's uh, actually good friends, in fact, a golfing buddy with another Nobel laureate from the University of Chicago, Eugene Fama. And it's funny because I've heard both of them speak. And uh, I was at a presentation about three or four years ago where Professor Fama, uh, the, the, the room was full of people that are sort of the traditional economists, sort of the, the old school people, the, you know, the, the rational self-optimizers. And, and the people asked uh, Fama, so you know, what do you think about these behavioralist upstarts? What do you, you know, what's, what's your view about them? 
And he said, well, they're, they're okay, I guess, because they, but they're, they're engaging in guerrilla warfare. They don't, they don't have a unifying theory of their own. All they do is find ways to pick holes with and find exceptions to and anomalies with our research. And I'm wondering if you might want to comment on that, if, uh, because you know, we're talking about is, is behavioral economics a fad or is it something that's here to stay? And I'm wondering if you can get a sense of staying power and maybe what we might reasonably expect in the next 10 or 20 years in terms of what textbooks uh, teach and what people do. Yeah, it's, I mean, it is true. And, and you've got a lot of traditional economics economists who have now become behavioral economists um, for those reasons, like uh, Kahneman and Tversky, for example. Um, who, uh, you know, no, there's Nobel Prizes being win, won by behavioral economists now, not traditional economists. And uh, you look at those traditional economists, Markowitz is a great one to put up with Fama and, and uh, Thaler. Uh, you know, he was instrumental in developing capital asset pricing model, and yet he observed of himself, he looked at how he invested his own university pension plan. Mm -hmm. And he simply divided all of his contribution over all of the available funds called the one over n heuristic. So yeah. if there's 10 funds, I put 10% in each and I've diversified. He fully admitted that he did that and he fully admitted that it was completely irrational. And he said that, you know, this, here I am, I'm the inventor of, or major contributor to capital asset pricing model and, and modern portfolio theory. And yet he recognized that because of cognitive limitations and limitations in time, that he did not make an optimal decision. And he had the observation that, you know, traditional economics is missing a big piece of the equation. Mm -hmm. And so it's not really fair for, for new classical economists to say, uh, you know, behavioral economists, you're simply criticizing existing theories, you have nothing to replace it with. That's not true. What behavioral economists are saying, the existing theories need to be developed further to incorporate additional assumptions with respect to how we actually make decisions. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I would say to Fama, you know, no, that's not true. What we're telling you is change your assumptions and let's see if with different assumptions as to how people actually make decisions, whether your predictions can become accurate instead of wildly inaccurate as they currently are. Good. Okay. That's, that's an important distinction. And I think a lot of people, it is a bit of a bun fight, as you say, I think um, uh, it's, it's like active versus passive and behavioral versus traditional. There are a lot of things in economics and in finance that um, tend to be tribal for lack of a better word where it's sort of like well which camp are you in as opposed to being evidence-seeking and open-minded and just say well I'll, I'll go wherever the evidence takes me let's see what it says and if, if you can compel me with what you have to say and you can actually back it up with with proof with you know peer-reviewed studies and various other things and you know um that's the sort of thing that now, can John, change, change minds Yeah, they, uh, they, I, I, yes, I am, as a matter of fact. And it's, it's, it's kind of funny because, you know, behavioral economics is all about biases. And we all have them, and not everyone likes to admit to them. And I think the people that are perhaps the, the least inclined to admit to bias are the people who uh, are coming up against self-interest and have things at stake, and they don't want their reputation to be marred or anything else. It actually it got me thinking about something that I think you would know about, um, are you familiar with the, the Semmelweis reflex? Yeah. Okay, I'm wondering if you could maybe uh, tell people in your words what that is and why that is. I mean, that's a, that's a great story. It's related to, there's two biases there that are related and, you know, it's very topical. We, we may not be on investing right now, but it's highly topical. In politics, confirmation bias uh, 
suggests that we prefer to hear facts that are, that are in accordance with their existing opinions, right? People watch Fox because Fox tells them that what they say is correct. And people watch CNN because CNN reaffirms your bias and confirms your bias. No one likes to tune into TV and find out their worldview is completely wrong. So we're very comfortable receiving the same information again and again, which certainly harms our ability to make rational decisions. So that's confirmation bias. You tend to seek information and, and place more credence in information that confirms your existing beliefs. We don't like to be told we're wrong. It's uncomfortable. The Semmelweis reflex is, is a little more insidious. It's um, where we actually actively find ways to denigrate and discredit ideas that are contrary to what we believe. So this poor guy Semmelweis, he's a real historical figure and he was a doctor um, and uh, he, he was, um, one of his specialties was OBGYN, he delivered babies. And he found that there was this, um, it was called childbirth fever. Um, the more technical medical name is purpurial fever, it doesn't really matter. But the point was what he found was a lot of women after giving Beth, birth were dying within one or two days of this, of this fever. And he found an association between, and you know, here's where I guess, here's the warning alert for anyone who's squeamish, uh, plug your ears for the next 30 seconds. Um, he found that when doctors had been, had gone from uh, dissecting cadavers in pursuit of medical knowledge, but when they had gone directly from dissecting cat cadavers to giving birth or to allow, you know, delivering a baby, um, they infected the mother with what was on their hands from dissecting the cadaver, which certainly couldn't be healthy. And that was causing the fever. And no one knew what it was, and it was invisible, and it was microscopic, and this was before the days when people understood microbes. Mm -hmm. um, so he put a simple experiment. He had people wash their hands before delivering a child. And lo and behold, uh, the incidence of fever declined substantially. Mm -hmm. You'd think that the medical profession would have awarded him the highest possible prize. Uh, untold numbers of, of women were saved from a very unpleasant, painful death. Um, but instead, what the, what the prevailing wisdom, uh, the medical establishment of the time said, he believes in invisible things that don't, they're tiny little invisible things, he must be crazy. And the poor man died in, in, a, in a mental institution because they not only disbelieved him, but they actively fought against his ideas and discredited him to the extent that he wound up in a mental institution. And the irony, of course, is that these are people who, who are taking a Hippocratic oath, whose first obligation was to do no harm. And they purportedly want to do what's right for their clients, and their patients, I guess, in this case. Yeah. Uh, but there are, there are similarities and, and, and sort of things that we can learn for other fields of endeavor, including finance. And there are a lot of people who, if they're very certain that they've got it down, they've got it all figured out, and they don't want to hear anybody else say, well, actually, here's a better way. And that can be behavioral economics versus traditional economics, but it can also be in the advice that's being imparted by, by advice givers to, to people who come to them looking for advice. If the people giving the advice are convinced that they've got it all down, they're doing it all properly, they know in their heart of hearts that they have good intentions. They're not, they're not trying to do anything that's unethical or improper or immoral. There's nothing like that at all. These, these are well-intended people, but they nonetheless are biased and can't see past their own biases and as a result, they're actually doing harm, even as they mean to be doing good. It's it's really that's what good. I that's what yeah. I like about your books, John, because you you know, you have the courage to say, why do we think this is true? Is right. this really true? We should question if this mm -hmm. is true. That, you know, it's entirely possible that we're wrong, 
and you know to have the courage to question and 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 question yourself as well as everyone around you who's telling you the world is flat um if you have the courage to question it that's the pursuit of nana and again that's one of the things that's a theme that runs throughout your books which right. is why i like them right thanks um <clears throat> i wonder if you could maybe think about how behavioral economics and the things that we learn about behavioral economics might redefine the role of a person who gives advice to retail clients retail investors just sort of up until now the advice has been oh the yield curve is inverting so that's that's a concern oh central banks are tightening or or the you know the unemployment numbers came in better than we thought and 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 as a result but it's a lot of it is sort of again the, the sort of physics envy of of the finance industry where we think we can empirically quantify certain things while simultaneously not thinking through the just the myriad different interrelationships between a whole bunch of different factors, some of which are uh, emotional and cannot even be reliably quantified, and then coming out on the other side with uh, a, oftentimes a forecast or a, or, a, or a worldview, which may or may not be correct, or it may be correct, it may be incorrect, but at any rate, it's, it's, not, it's not reliably quantifiable and predictable the way physics would be the way chemistry would be. It's the sort of thing where different people will argue about the meaning of information and the impact of different, you know, factors and inputs and, and what, what to do with it all. So I'm wondering if you can maybe offer some suggestions as to what a person who gives advice to retail clients maybe ought to think about, um, hacks, things that they could do differently, things that they can at least draw to their uh, investors' attention to help them maybe think things through a little more thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, uh, the essential challenge that I think you're identifying there is we're talking about a social science here as opposed to a physical science. Um, we're not measuring physical properties of matter where there's an answer. Uh, this is a social science where, you know, for as we discussed earlier on, right, we don't behave like computers. We behave irrationally. We sometimes make bizarre decisions or apparently bizarre decisions. Um, you know, I think there's a famous saying and it needs to be updated, but, you know, the, the bond market has predicted 19 of the past 10 recessions. Right. So, I mean, is it an accurate predictor? Um, <laughs> apparently not. But we all place place credit in it. So, you know, if I'm a financial advisor and I'm looking at this, I'm saying, you know what, I would bet you that, um, you know, a, a computer could, uh, and this is done all the time now, um, you know, a computer can design the optimal portfolio um, given multiple possible, you know, simulations of future paths. Um, use a Monte Carlo simulation, run it 10,000 times, look at the kurtosis, look at the skewness, look at the mean and median of, of, of the distribution of the, the portfolio outcomes and choose the optimal allocation. A computer can do that way better than a human can. It can do it in seconds. Um, and again, it's probabilistic. It's not going to be perfect. No one knows. If anyone knew, um, you know, that would be an entirely different. But computers are good at numbers. They're good at making calculations that aren't influenced by biases. Advisors, we're human. And one of the things we have is insights into other humans, into emotions, uh, into attitudes, into intentions. We, we can understand why people believe behave this way. Computers will never understand, you know, perfectly why humans make the decisions they make. But we as humans right. have the power, we have empathy, right? So I, I, some people have said that the, the future of, of giving advice to retail investors is cyborg. It's a combination of maybe artificial intelligence uh, where, you, where you crunch the numbers with the computers to, to find the optimal past on, on a uh, balance of probabilities basis, uh, knowing full well that 
sometimes what seems to be optimal might still, for whatever reason, not not ultimately be optimal, might not work out, but it it's at least the most likely. And then marrying that with the human emotional side of face-to-face -face contact, where, you know, Mr. Jones, Mrs. Jones, uh, we've looked at your portfolio, and it looks like you're not going to be able to retire at 62 after all. And and we need to, to talk about, well, so what are the trade-offs going to be? Are you going to, you know, hopefully, I don't think we should change your asset mix because that's too much risk for you to take at this stage in your life. But maybe we should talk about saving $150 a month more. Maybe we should talk about retiring at 64 or 65. Maybe we should just have a frank discussion about, you know, you just can't have that vacation um, uh, uh, in the Mediterranean every year like you thought you could. You can have the rest of your retirement, but you have to make some lifestyle sacrifices. But those sorts of decisions are probably made are best, or those conversations are best to have one-on-one -on -one with the people after you've crunched the numbers with the machines. And I think that's sort of, my guess is that's where the, that's where the industry is moving. I would agree. So Russell Investments actually did a good study on this where they looked at the value of what, what they call behavioral coaching. And it's exactly that, right? You let the computer do the number crunching because it's good at that. And you do the behavioral coaching and say, you know, if, if you just put away a little more every month and if you just stopped, um, you know, selling every time there's a little dip in the market and if you just took, a, you know, a little better asset allocation. Anyway, they quantified that as being 2.02% annually, which, you know, and again, here's the difference between humans and computers. You say that to average humans and they go, oh, okay, it's only 2%, you know. How, how much is that really, right? We, don't, we are not good at floating point calculations. Our brains were not built to automatically solve the equation. One plus 0.02 to the exponent n, where n is 20 minus one. So one plus i to the n minus one, what does that return? So 2.02% over 20 years would increase the value of your portfolio by 50%. But if you ask someone that, it's 2% a year, you know, do you think that's valuable? That's okay. If you say, what about 50% over 20 years, a 50% increase in your portfolio? They go, well, now I'm interested. Well, it's the same number. We're just there's, not used to doing those calculations. There's even an, there's a company that even runs ads to that effect. Uh, I don't know if you know Quest Trade, but they actually run ads that say, you know, retire 35% wealthier. And they've just gone through that, that very calculation. They say, if we can save X number of dollars or X number of basis points per year and hold all other variables constant, if you if you play it out over 30 years, I think is the number that they use for their calculations for purposes of their ad. Their ad can't say that. You've got a 30 second spot. You can't go through the. Uh, but when people say, well, well, where do you get that number from? They've actually crunched numbers and they've just said we're just going to do the same sorts of things as everyone else, except that we're going to do it at a lower cost and still do hopefully some behavioral coaching. So that's the sort of thing where you can quantify uh, maybe a value of advice, but also the importance of cost and the importance of time. And there are a lot of things that you can sort of do that you sort of need to give some thought to. So it's, you know, it's helpful. Um, what do you think? So, yeah, bottom line, we need to be behavioral coaches. Right. Not, um, not Right. So where do you see the things going in the future? What do you, what do you think is uh, beyond the cyborg conversation? I'm wondering if there's anything else that you can think of with regard to maybe industry regulation, uh, things that are coming down the pike that might sort of help people to think about how behavioral economics might be applied down the road? So, you know, if we look at what's going on currently, one of the big things that's happening that's being talked about a lot in the industry is total cost reporting. And, mm -hmm. you know, people can be on various sides of that issue and, and it's a complex issue. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the things it does identify is the way we're starting to think differently about um, the purpose of statements, for example. 
and the pur purpose of client communication. Too many times our statements, uh, you know, you, you open your typical investment statement, it's going to show you prior period returns, historical returns. Um, if your objective is to get the client to make better decisions for the future, why are you focusing them on the past and what happened in the past? And, you know, we've actually done a lot of research at the BeWorks Research Institute where we look at how the information you provide to people and the manner in which you provide it. Um, information is never presented in a value neutral format. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's no such thing as a human looking at a piece of information and just making a dispassionate analytical assessment of the information content. They're going to be influenced by something. If they see a declining trend, they're going to say, oh, my God, the market's going to zero. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so we have to really think about how information is presented. And I think total cost reporting is an interesting one where a lot of people are concerned that it provides too much information and it does provide additional information. But the question isn't the quantity of the information as much as how it's presented. Um, I think it's a great opportunity for the industry, industry to take a look and say, and again, I believe everyone in the industry actually really does uh, have uh, the goal of creating better financial outcomes for clients. Um, I, I think that is people's, people's objective. So the argument isn't um, whether that's good. The argument is how to achieve that. And I think uh, if we redesign statements to be forward-looking and instead of saying, okay, well, last quarter wasn't so good for you, um, if we said, okay, given where we are now and given that you've got 30 years until you're going to be retiring, let's think about, uh, based on current information, what we need to do to help you, to help increase the probability that you're going to achieve your goal. Right. So this is all back, back to the idea of constructive behavior modification. And if, uh, you know, if we want to be behavioral coaches, we have to find ways to not just talk about what happened after it happened, uh, because, you know, it, it, it's another way of demonstrating that, that we're relatively poor forecasters. We, anybody can explain anything after the fact, but if it, if it was so easy to explain after the fact, why didn't you see it coming? And, yeah, and, and, this and so we have loss aversion. There's, you know, that's been demonstrated. We feel the pain of a loss twice as uh, intensely as, as a gain. And so if you're really trying to encourage a long-term focus, um, think about this, right? I, you show a client a statement right now. They're going to naturally say, I felt a loss. I'm unhappy. I need to de-risk my portfolio. I want more in my savings account. Um, what, when's the best time to buy? At the peak or at the bottom? And I don't know if the bottom was last month, this month, or three months from now, but I do know that we're not at a top right now. So if I were to be giving uh, a client advice, it wouldn't be to liquidate more of the portfolio. It would be to take a long-term view and say, you know what? Everything just went on sale. Right. Um, is there anything we want to buy right now? So um, the way the information is presented can bias the client to making a bad decision. Right. So as an advisor, you want them forward-looking. You want, you know look at the risks and look at the complexity and, and reduce the effect of that loss aversion and say, this is a long-term gain. We're making decisions for 30 years, not based on what happened last month. And, you know, you put those losses in and focus on those losses, you're going to trigger loss aversion. Right. And this is where behavioral coaching comes in, right? Show people, show people a chart of the last 30 years and the current, you know, absolute disaster in the markets is a tiny blip in what is just a good long-term return for many of the indexes and reduce the amount of information there. They, you know, we kill people with too much information. I don't know why a statement has to be seven pages, right? It can be a page and sit down and say, all right, where are we today? And where do we need to be in 30 years? Let's move forward. Good. 
Okay, so we're running out of time. I just wanted to go to the last couple of things. Uh, as you, I think, might know, the, the format for this podcast is to end with uh, my two favorite segments, the first being, that's bullshit, and the second one being, bullshit, uh, second one being, shift happens. So that's bullshit is where I invite my, my guests to maybe talk about something that they think uh, is an example of optimism bias, but it doesn't necessarily have to be optimism bias. It could be anything with regard to the, the industry, the way things work that you think could be done differently. What do you think? Yeah, so for me, the, you know, I can't help but think of the whole mean stock and uh, cryptocurrency fads that are going on right now where, you know, just to me, it is absolutely amazing that people are making huge bets um, due to fear of missing out. It's like, I don't know what the latest, they created a coin as a joke, Dogecoin, and it was supposed to be a joke, and now people are investing in it. And uh, to me, that is bullshit, that yeah. people have have become so interested in getting into the latest technology trend or missing out on the latest technology trend that they're ignoring fundamentals. Like you're buying something that has no intrinsic value. Right. Gold has an intrinsic value. Right. A company about, has an intrinsic value. What about shift happens then? So if uh, you've done a great job of identifying a problem, if you could then wave a magic wand and fix that problem, what would you do for shift happens to actually make the industry better? Um, you know, on that one, it comes back to the coaching, uh, the behavioral coaching, because the reason why people are making those decisions is, is they're losing trust in the financial services industry and they're losing trust in financial advisors. Uh, because we haven't done a good job of helping them, giving them that coaching, giving them the handholding, right? right. They, they need two things fundamentally. They need to achieve their goals, but they also need to feel better about life while they're doing it. And we need to do a much better job at providing that behavioral coaching so that people don't have fear of missing out and buy, you know, the latest cryptocurrency only to find out later that it's absolutely worthless. So what do we need to do? We need to become better, better behavioral coaches. Great. That's a great way to end. David, I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure. Um, I, I, I follow what, so much of what you do. I you know, read your reports and, and uh, I'm a big fan of what, what you do and what BE Works does for the Canadian economy and the consulting you do and moving the, moving the ball forward. As, and it's really a really important topic. So thank you for all you do. Well, thanks, John. Thanks for having me. And, you know, once again, I, I, I'd give a, I'd give a recommendation for some of your books because you do have the courage to, to get people to question prevailing wisdom. Thank you so much. Okay, we'll see you soon and all the best to you. Bullshift, the podcast, was created in support of John DeGuey's book, Bullshift, available now online and in bookstores everywhere. The comments and opinions are those of the author and his guests. They are for informational purposes and should not be construed as investment advice. John DeGuey is an author, public speaker, senior investment advisor, and portfolio manager at Wellington Altus Private Wealth. For more information about John and his books, please visit standup.today. Bullshift, the podcast, is produced by TalkShoe, a division of IOTUM.